There will be a cost associated with this plan. But by making these investments in foreclosure prevention today, we will save ourselves the costs of foreclosure tomorrow. Costs that are borne not just by families with troubled loans, but by their neighbors and communities and by our economy as a whole. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. This is Wednesday, February 18th. On the show today, we're going to talk about nationalizing banks the Swedish way. And also, Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman is going to take your questions over Twitter. Now, today's been an exciting day of economic news. GM and Chrysler presented their exciting plans for viability funded by us, the taxpayers. Very exciting plans for another $21.6 billion in rescue loans from the federal government. And at the top of the show, you heard President Barack Obama introducing the new Homeowner Affordability and Stability Program. The White House tells us it could cost around $75 billion and help something like 9 million households. And besides that, it's got at least one Planet Money indicator. The number is 11, and it comes from something economist Amr Sufi counted up in the plan's executive summary. The word responsible is used 11 times in the uh, document, which is just over three pages, which I found to be uh, quite uh, interesting. Um, What do you make of it? Well, it seems to me the Obama administration is keenly aware that the uh, population in the United States is increasingly uh, fatigued with bailouts. So both the you know, financial bailout back in October of 2008, which was $700 billion, the most recent stimulus package, which a lot of people see as a bailout uh, for consumers. And as a result, the Obama administration is carefully pointing out that they are only going to provide homeowner assistance uh, to homeowners that are responsible, not those irresponsible types that tried to live well beyond their means. What do you suppose that that really means? I mean, it seems to me that if you need help with foreclosure, then you're behind in your mortgage payment. Does that make you irresponsible to start with? It's hard to say. It's one of those things where it's, you know, telling the difference is is very difficult between an irresponsible and a responsible household. Housing prices have now fallen on average in the U.S. almost 25 to 30 percent since their peak. So if you bought at the peak, by definition, you're probably in trouble because your housing price has fallen. Is that to say that you are irresponsible for having bought at the peak? It's hard to say, but obviously there are also people out there who knew for sure that they could not afford the homes they were moving into, and as a result, you know, were inevitably going to default. And I think it's, it's justifiable that the U.S. taxpayer does not want to reward these irresponsible homeowners. Amr Sufi teaches at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, and Laura and I are going to be talking to him tomorrow, I think. We're going to talk to him some more this week about all this. Yeah, I'm trying to get him to help us unpack this housing plan. It's a, it's a great big plan. It has lots of small points and a few broad strokes. For a while, we were hearing nothing but Japan, Japan, Japan. The U.S. cannot be like the Japanese lost decade. Lately, it feels like we're hearing about Sweden all the time. Um, Everyone's talking about we should follow the Swedish model or we should not follow the Swedish model. And that is now sort of shorthand for the U.S. should nationalize the banks. Yeah, Drudge today has this big picture of the Swedish flag across his site. President Barack Obama being the main focus of that picture on Drudge. He mentioned Sweden when he was interviewed on Nightline last week, and President Obama said 
Sweden looks like a good model, but hey, they've got like five banks and the United States has, you know, thousands. You know, the scale of the U.S. economy and the capital markets are so vast uh, and the, the, the problems in terms of managing and overseeing anything of that scale, uh, I think, uh, would, our assessment was that uh, it wouldn't make sense. Uh, and we also have different traditions in this country, and we want to retain a strong sense of uh, private capital uh, fulfilling the cor- core investment needs of this country. So, Laura, I spent part of today just talking about that quote that we just played by Obama. This is now, I mean, literally like the trillion dollar question. Did he just leave it open a little that maybe we will go to Sweden or did he really close the door on Sweden? People are parsing every comma in that quote trying to figure it out because it's it's crucial. It, It tells us what might happen. There are many people we talk to who say, oh, we're definitely heading in that direction. So so we thought we should understand Sweden some more. Like, what what, what exactly happened there? Is it a model for what we're doing here? So I, I called up Leif Pogratsky. He's the vice chairman of the Central Bank in Sweden. And strangely, because that's not how our system works, he's also in the Swedish parliament. So he's a political figure and a central bank figure. Um, and back in 1994, when all this nationalization was happening, he was Secretary of State for Financial Affairs. Um, he says that Americans are attributing things to Sweden that isn't quite accurate. And so I started by just asking him to explain what was the Swedish financial crisis. The economy had had a period of extreme overheating due to a financial deregulation. We had deregulated banks and financial markets, and it resulted in an explosion in bank lending. So people borrowed and got indebted to an extreme extent. It meant households, but it also meant investors who invested in, say, real estate and uh, hotels and you name it. And then suddenly this bubble collapsed, and everybody at the same time tried to consolidate their balance sheets, tried to reduce their debt and increase their savings and reduce their spending. So the economy went into free fall and all kinds of customers to the banks went bankrupt and couldn't repay their debt, couldn't pay their interest. But it wasn't concentrated to uh, households or private people owning apartments and villas like in the U.S. It was primarily... Uh, concentrated to to um, uh, commercial property but the banks very quickly ran into very big problems and almost most, almost all of them were very very close to bankruptcy and so so now now the thing that we're obviously uh the thing we're paying the most attention to is is this phrase nationalizing the banks now i understand from your article it was it was actually the largest bank in Sweden, it was their choice. It wasn't something the government imposed on them. Can you explain how that happened? We had at that time, remember, Sweden is not a very big country. We had at that time four or five five or six banks that were of of national importance. Uh, One of them had the, the, the government as a main owner. That bank went bankrupt. Uh, not technically, but in principle. And that meant that the main owner had to go in and to avoid bankruptcy, had to fill it up with money to to make it survive. The so government was, had been the owner before the crisis? It, 
yes, to about 80% of the bank. It oh. about 80% of the shares. So what the, what this government did was to to uh, pay a limited sum of money to the private owners to take it over entirely and then restructure the bank so that it could survive and that cost a lot of taxpayers money. But but the important and then what and then uh, another bank that was a oh, bit wait, smaller. Can, I'm sorry. Can I? I just want to go back one step. I mean, a, a very important difference right there is that the government was already the owner. It wasn't that it was a private bank that said, "Please, government, help us exactly. stay alive." Exactly. That was a big difference. So the government went in there not primarily as as a state regulating markets, afraid of having the markets go into free fall. It was primarily the owner who took responsibility for its own failures as an owner. And in order to to um, avoid a bankruptcy that would have uh, had severe problems for the bank's depositors, for instance, the owner had to be responsible and fill up the money that was missing. Gotcha. Okay, so that's... And what was the name of that bank? It was called Nordbanken. Nordbanken. Yeah, that in our language means the Northern Bank. The Northern Bank. Okay, so and that was the largest bank. One of the one of the very large. Banks. One of the very one large of the largest. Banks. Okay. One of the dominant banks. Okay, so the government has no choice, really. I mean, it's it it, it has no choice. It has. Yes. Yeah. All right. So what what happens next? I interrupted you. Then there was another bank, who uh, well, most people then realized that the financial sector was in deep trouble. And through that, the entire economy was in deep trouble. But politically, there was a debate that this was, some people said, this is not an economic problem. This is not an issue of the financial sector. This is an issue of one mismanaged individual single bank. And they resisted doing any measures of a more general character. And while uh, believing this, uh, as we know now, this wrong picture of the problem, measures to address the problems were postponed until the crisis had exploded into a very severe systemic crisis. Because it actually was a financial market crisis. It was not just one bank. Is that Absolutely. what you're saying? Absolutely. That we know now. Everybody knows it. Now it's quite clear. I'll tell you what feels similar about that. Um, a lot of people are saying that Congress and the administration has been one or two or ten steps behind this crisis. It, it's been very hard. That to... is very similar. Yes. And, that, and... Is a, a, that is a striking parallel between the American and the Swedish experience. Behind the curve is a good word for this. If you react later than reality has changed, not in anticipation, not when you see it through the window, but when you wait until it has become so dramatic so you cannot avoid it, then you have to do 10 times as tough things compared to if you do it at an earlier stage of, of development. So, so when is the moment, you know, when we say the Swedish solution, we need to follow the Swedish model, what we mean is nationalize the banks. So, so, so we have a situation where one of the big banks is already nationalized. When does Sweden nationalize the rest of the banks? There was only one more bank that became nationalized. And the story there was a little bit different. It was um, um, not so big, but big enough to be important for the, for the system that 
collapsed. And the previous owner could not put in any more money. They could not save it the way the government saved the state-owned bank. So uh, they simply told the government that, here you are. We give you the shares in this bank, and you do whatever you want with it. And the government tried to resist. They tried to tell the private owner to to uh, uh, save the bank, but they didn't. They couldn't find that money. And so, uh, reluctantly and against their own will, they got that bank in their lap. And that was not an active nationalization, but the bank got nationalized anyway. And the alternative of bankruptcy was out of question because it would have meant that the entire economy would have. This was a systemic uh, crisis, and uh, it would have meant like Lehman's, like the Lehman collapse in the U.S., that if that bank had collapsed, the credibility of the entire system would have would have gone. So the government did save it, and what they did was that they merged it with the other bank that was already state-owned. And uh, that was the end of it. We didn't do any more nationalizations. Wait, so then why you... are we talking about it? It's... Because I think uh, there is another another element to this. The way we treated the ass- the bad assets of these banks, that uh, that they were uh, later privatized. And I think also there was an issue of, uh, in in hindsight, politicians felt that it's a good idea to nationalize banks for a t- short time and then privatize them when times get better. But this may be a good idea, but this is not something they actually did. So it may be a Swedish idea, but it was not a Swedish practice. And uh, the the bank that we owned at that time, we are still, the government is still the uh, main owner. We own only 20%, but it's still uh, controlling, a controlling part of the shares. Nordbanken? Yes, that's now changed name to Nordea. It's the biggest bank in the Nordic area. It's very successful, very um, profitable, and uh, one of the banks with the with the um, uh, lowest risks today. So since then, that bank has uh, has been a true success story. So the turnaround of that bank is part of a Swedish model that the state could run a bank, they could own a bank, and beat the private owners when when it comes to uh, to quality ownership, so to speak. That is part of the Swedish model. And taxpayers have got some, some of them lost money back because the price of that bank has improved in line with the profits. I see. So so, so the actual model, is, I think when people in America say this, I mean, I don't know what everyone says, and f- frankly, I think 99% of Americans don't even know, but the people who talk about the Swedish model... Like the president. Like the president. I think they're talking about nationalizing the a large chunk of the entire banking system. I think in American terms, that means several of what we call the big money center banks, the big household name banks, taking them under government control. Is, is I the, think... Yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead, please. I think that's a very good idea when the banks are in deep trouble, because I don't believe that it's a good idea to hand those banks cash without giving the taxpayers and their elected representatives um, influence on how their money is spent. And if a big bank needs more capital, if the state is the only one who can provide that capital, the state should not have less ownership responsibilities, less ownership rights, 
than any other owner. And if the old, old owners are out because their money is out, then it's it's fully tax. They will be fully taxpayer-owned banks. That's no that's no problem for me. Then, of course, it's a problem for the government to organize its ownership so that the banks can return to profits and be well managed. And that's their responsibility and how to reintroduce it in the private sector in the in the longer term. But that can be done. And our experience here is quite good. But what Sweden cannot tell us, as far as I can tell, I mean, those are all excellent, excellent conclusions. But what Sweden cannot tell us is we know that it's possible for government to go to a fully private banking system, take over many of the leading banks, and, and, and that that process will be successful. Sweden just doesn't have the experience to tell us that, right? We, we, have, man, we have the experience to say it like this. We have shown that a democratically elected government can be the owner of a successful bank. The government can be a strong, long-term, patient owner who does not have to look at the stock valuations on a daily or monthly or quarterly basis, but take a long-term horizon, which in the banking business is extremely important. And politicians can organize its ownership so that state-owned banks can be very successful in the market without interfering with political demands on an independent management of the bank. That is our experience, and that experience is very powerful. So, Adam, if we do the Swedish way, does that mean that we get ABBA at, like, branch openings and stuff? Yeah, obviously. Um, so the other day we interviewed Paul Krugman, and I have to say he reprimanded me for calling him Krugman. He pronounces it Krugman. Um, he's the most recent uh, winner of the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics. He's a Princeton professor, and perhaps some of you noticed that he is a columnist for the New York Times. Um, we had a bunch of questions for him, but um, Laura, you, you had this pretty awesome idea, which turned out really nice. Yeah, we decided that since you guys out there always have these great questions for us, that we would just put it out to you on Twitter. And we asked you to tell us what questions asked Paul Krugman. They were great questions, and we did it. And by the way, this is an incentive. Those of you who are not following us on Twitter, maybe even those of you who have never gone to Twitter.com and signed up for an account, I was not into this thing. I thought it was a bunch of junk. Who needs 140 messages sent to your phone? Laura has made me a convert. And this interview made me a convert. This thing is really cool. So check it out and look for us at Planet Money. Um, Laura, I think you, you ask the first question from a Twitter tweeterer. This one comes from Holden L. He says, the $8,000 homebuyer tax credit, what problem is it trying to solve? Will it solve it? Why or why not? Uh, yeah, uh, they're trying to solve the problem of falling home prices and uh, 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 all of that, but it, it won't solve it. And the fundamental reason above everything else is that, uh, you know, we had a huge housing bubble and it's still not fully deflated. And ultimately, there's nothing that Washington can do to keep home prices from falling back to on sort of normal level relative to people's incomes, relative to the rental rates on apartments. So, yeah, it, it's a futile gesture. And what it will probably end up doing, to the extent a lot depends on exactly how these things are implemented, but what we're worried about is uh, flipping, that 
uh, as as the economist Dean Baker put it, it, it was originally bigger and with fewer restrictions. Uh, it was the uh, uh, flip your house to your brother uh, plan. Uh, it's, it wasn't clear it would do anything productive. From Folk Engine, what's your opinion on Noriel Rubini's call to nationalize insolvent banks? Uh, yes, I'm. I'm one hundred. I'm. I'm one hundred fifty percent behind that. I mean, and I don't think it's just Nuriel. A lot of people. Yeah, because basically we have the problem that that a number of major banks are either insolvent or very close to. Um, we need to keep those banks operating to because they play a central role in the economy. We've seen what happens when we let Lehman Brothers fail. We saw what happened then. So you, you don't want them to just go under. But policy is totally stymied by the problem of how do you put enough money to keep these put enough money into the banks to keep them running without just handing a huge windfall to stockholders and the answer is well take them over do what and you know we do this uh three the 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 fdic basically seizes three banks or so every week uh saying well they 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 can't manage we're guaranteeing their deposits but we're going to take them over and and it it then cleans them up takes a lot of the bad stuff off its books resells the banks um, ultimately, what we're saying is that that's going to have to be done for probably uh, two, three, four, or five of the major banks in the United States. And and what I was talking to Simon Johnson um, yesterday about this. I, I don't know what to picture when I picture a nationalized bank. I mean, of course, what I picture is some, I don't know, Soviet-style right. you know building with a bunch of bureaucrats running it, and and I need to fill out three thousand forms just to you know. Get, go to the ATM machine. I, I'm guessing that's not what no, nationalized the banks. Nobody uh, wants the government running the banks uh, for any longer than is necessary to to get them privatized again, right? It's it's what we're what we're really talking about is, and maybe the nationalization is an unfortunate word, although it's correct. But receivership. What we're talking about is, look, the stockholders have this this bank is has assets that are less than its liabilities we've got negative value but we want to keep it in existence so the government is going to come in and rescue it but this shouldn't be rescuing the stockholders they they took a risk when they bought the stock and so much for that so we're going to take it over only for the purposes of cleaning it up um it's not going to be even when it's during the period when it's government owned you probably want to run it more or less as if it was a, a private bank like the same employees would stay. Well, except maybe for a few people at the top. When we right, but the teller stocks but, and, right. The yeah. tellers will stay there. Uh, and will they get a check from the government, or will they get a? No, they get a check from the bank, it, yeah. which will in fact uh, be temporarily. I mean, the, as, as a number of people said, you know, basically all of our biggest banks are federal agencies at this point. They exist uh, because of the implicit guarantee from the taxpayer, but. But that doesn't mean that we actually write checks from the from the government. Um, nobody, right? You know, it would, uh, it's, it's not that Commissar Geithner should seize the commanding heights of the economy. It's it's uh, we're, we're talking about how we go about the business of rescuing these banks without handing big windfall profits to people who don't deserve it. From Lefos, if you had the ability to get the government to do one thing to help the economy now, what would that be? Oh boy, I have a hard time coming down with to just one because I think it actually it does require at least two things. One of them is big fiscal stimulus, but bigger than we're getting right now, and the other is clean up the banking system, which is probably I, I mean I like the idea of a stress test that we're going to go in there, have government auditors march into all of the big banks, 
and then say with phony surprise, ooh, several of these banks are insolvent. Take them over and clean them up. But that's the uh, those are the two things. I love the idea that that's a new idea. <laughs> like, shouldn't that have happened a long time ago? Isn't uh, that the most obvious thing in the world that a government would do? Well, it's yeah, but we're people are reluctant. It is a big step. Um, it's it, Certainly, it was inconceivable under the previous administration, right? Uh, the previous administration believed in that private was always better, even if private existed entirely at, at taxpayer expense. Uh, so it's new, and and but it, it's hard. People people get nervous. It, the we we have this funny system now where we've sort of we've got lemon socialism, where we only take things over when they're in trouble, and it, it's it's very hard to get people nerved up. Let me put it another way. We we were had. I think there's a bit of ideological whiplash going on. I mean, it's only two years since um, bankers were heroes. Uh, since the the masters of the universe on Wall Street were the people who were making our economy run. Uh, when government was bad and private sector was always good, uh, I think we actually ought to cut government officials and everybody else a little bit of slack on saying it's really kind of hard for them to... I haven't noticed you're cutting a whole lot of slack. Well, my role is that of, of, of trying to goad these people into doing the right thing, right? So right. that's... But, but I, I do understand why it's so hard. I got to say, Robert Siegel, you know, the host of All Things Considered, uh, once said about you that that you're a different guy on the radio. You're, you don't throw um, Molotov cocktails as much. You're more, you know... It, it, it's a it's it's a different feel. Is it, is that fair? Well, probably. I mean, I in in person I'm a pussycat, and uh, and the other thing is the uh, um, 806 word constraint forces you to make every word count, which means every word has got to be a bullet. Right, got you. Adam, why don't you pick one last Twitter question for us here? H. Kovitz has sent several. Yeah, H. Kovitz really wants to ask you a lot of questions. Okay. Um, well, I'd be interested in this. Uh, what blogs do you read? I mean, I certainly read your blog. I, I love your blog, um, but I and I read a lot on the you know people who on the left and the right. Um, what what do you what do you have in your reader? Oh, um, well, I I look at uh, Brad Long. Uh, I look at Mark Toma, calcul- um, uh, Economist View. I look at whoever Calculated Risk is to read Calculated Risk. Um, the anyone on the right. I I a little bit uh sort of as things pop up. I I look at the feed uh on on Mark Thomas on on Thomas view and and if there's something that looks interesting I read it. But I have to say I, in this current crisis I'm not finding a whole lot of useful analysis on the other side. Uh, I I look at Greg Mankiw but um it it's yeah, I I I'm really finding actually that the information blogs, which all have at least some political leaning, probably, but not that obvious, are, are useful. So calculated risk. I'm read FT Alphaville just to get the Financial Times bloggers' view on what's going on. I'm uh, reading Willem Bowder uh, at the FT, who is always fun to read. Um, a little. He, he's certainly over the top, but but in an interesting way. And uh, otherwise, I kind of hop around. Sure, and uh, and Martin Wolf's things. I guess, well, Martin uh, Martin is, is mostly does what are, are articles, but rather than than blog posts. But it's 
a little hard to tell the difference actually sometimes. So, uh, and no, he's he Martin is is one of you have to read everything he writes to have any idea what's going on. Right, and then just H. Kovitz had had one other. Well, he asks it several different ways, but basically, would you accept any any jobs in the administration? Well, you know, I, I, it would be a, a really bad idea for them to offer it and for me to accept. Uh, which is not quite the same thing as you know what would happen if if I got this call saying help save us you have to be treasury secretary and I would probably spend several hours trying to explain why that was a terrible idea but I don't know what I would answer in the end um, no I'm I'm temperamentally unsuited um, first of all I'm I, I do uh, tend to come out with strong opinions I'm also totally disorganized as a as administrator um, and I think I actually have better. I think I have better input into the actual policy process from where I am than I probably would from any job I would be likely to be offered. Sounds like a commerce secretary to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that boy. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's this, you know, they, um, I, I, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a good backroom guy, so a lot better where I am. That's a wrap for today. We'll be back podcasting on Friday. We might even have a hint of some of the stuff from our This American Life collaboration for next week, or at the very least, we'll, we'll tell you more about it. Big This American Life Hour with Planet Money next week. Check out the blog, meantime, npr.org slash money, where we have the story behind one of the coolest, most viral little recession photos going. I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. Don't